When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. Kickoff at the World Cup, and the Gegenpot is here to break it all down. We've got former Socceroo Tommy Orr across all the big talking points of the tournament opener, and Socceroo's icon Mark Schwarzer on the ground in Doha with an update on what the vibes are like and a look ahead to Australia's first match against France. I'm your host, Teo Pelizzeri. This is the Optus Sport Football Podcast. Let's get in to the Gegenpod. Indeed, it is day one of the Gegen Pod at the World Cup, and we have a man who went to the World Cup in 2010. Your host here, Teo Pelizzeri, as a spectator, and of course, the man who played at a World Cup, more importantly, Tommy, or former Socceroo. Tommy, it's great to have you along. Uh, we're all a little bit bleary-eyed this morning due to the middle-of-the-night kickoff, but uh, how did the tournament opener leave you feeling? Yeah, obviously, um, it's always fascinating to watch the first game of the World Cup, and there was obviously a lot of uh, yeah noises about this one, and no one really knew what to expect. But yeah, I think overall it was um, yeah it was, it was a it was a great game. I thought I thought obviously from a Qatari perspective they were quite disappointing, but I think Ecuador was very impressive, and yeah, I, I, I thought it was an entertaining game to be honest. So Qatar nil, Ecuador two, Ena Valencia with both the goals. We've never had a host lose the opener before. First time in 92 years of World Cups. And the hosts, they so often carry the tournament. I mean, it doesn't matter whether it's a Euros, a Copper America, a World Cup. If the hosts crash out in the group stage, if the hosts play badly, it can cast a pall over the rest of the competition. So how do you think that's going to affect this tournament if the trend that we, we've seen today continues? For sure. I think that there's no doubt that the whole country will be feeling a little bit deflated, I'm sure. Um, obviously, I think I think the circumstances over the last kind of four or five years have really inflated the expectations there. And whether or not they were realistic, I'm not sure. But obviously, you know, winning the Asian Cup and some great form in the, over the last few years and some of the friendly games they've played, I think they honestly thought they could surprise a lot of people. But, you know, the World Cup's a different beast. And I think that Ecuador's experience in the major tournaments really showed last night. And um, I think that from a Qatar perspective, though, they need to kind of regather themselves and not kind of, you know, throw the baby out with the bathwater. It's still really early days. There's still two more games to be everything to play for. So um, I'm hoping that they don't kind of, yeah, it doesn't really ruin the environment like you mentioned. But, I mean, yeah, time will tell. Now, I've got to ask you, Tommy, billions of dollars were spent on the Aspire Academy. Billions. And billions of dollars, 12 years of knowing you're hosting this tournament, and they roll out Saad Al Shaib as their starting goalkeeper. Is that the best they could do for all that time and money? You've got to be kidding me. Have you ever seen, have you ever seen an individual um, get stage fright and, and just you know turn in a howler like he did in that first half? VAR got him out of jail on conceding the first goal where he was very culpable, but then within 10 minutes he was conceding a penalty anyway. Yeah, I think um, he's diff- obviously, had a, like you mentioned, a really difficult start, and I think it, it rattled him, and I think that was obvious. And, you know, there was so many shaky moments where he wasn't sure whether or not to come for the ball or not or these types of things. And, you know, from a from a team perspective, to have a shaky goalkeeper doesn't instill heaps of confidence in the team. And, um, 
you know, I think they needed to show a lot more composure in that first half, and that's where Ecuador really took advantage. And I think second half, they definitely were, were much better, but the damage was already done. So I think that, you know, looking forward from their perspective, they'll have to take a, maybe replace the goalkeeper. I'm not sure what their second goalkeeper's like, but I think they'll have to, you know, take a bit more confidence from the second half and try and make sure they start the game in more in that manner. Well, you say the the second half had some better signs, but unfortunately the home fans didn't stick around to see it. Uh, the fans were leaving early. Obviously, a lot of the English-speaking social media, you know, journalist accounts that are there covering the tournament were very quick to point that out as well. How worried should we be uh, for neutral games? Or do you think neutral games won't have that problem? Maybe this is more just a response to the home team letting them down as opposed to going along for a sticky beak at two low name recognition teams. Or, of course, you know, there's no way you're leaving early if it's Argentina and Messi or Portugal and Cristiano Ronaldo, yeah. surely. Yeah, I think that's right. I think it was probably more of a, of a protest as opposed to a, you know, a reflection of their interest in the in the tournament as a whole. So obviously, from a from an outside perspective, you want there to be full stadiums in these games. You know, it's the it's the pinnacle of the sport, and I, I do believe that you know it, this won't affect the neutral games like you mentioned. But I think it was probably more of a, a form of protest against their dissatisfaction of how they yeah, began the tournament. Probably now we can't judge completely until Senegal play, but Qatar's got Senegal next. Uh, early gut feeling. Are Qatar going to bomb out after two games? Or do you think that they, they can turn this around? Or, or maybe just a little bit of the, the not-so-magic dust that was sprinkled on the VAR decision in the first three minutes <laughs> might, might end up being a, a full sandpit in the next game. Yeah, well, I, I think the dynamics of this group is going to be really interesting. I think um, Ecuador definitely surprised last night. And I think that the stakes on the, the Senegal-Netherlands game are, are going to be massive now. And you know whatever team doesn't get a good result tonight in that game is going to see the Qatar game is a must win. So, I mean, it's not an ideal situation for Qatar to, to face two teams that will see that game as a must win game now. So, um, yeah, for me, I, I, I can't see Qatar getting out of the group. I think they really had to have a really fast start in this tournament and kind of build up that kind of, yeah, that wave of momentum or whatever you want to call it. But, you know, their slow starts really left them with a lot of catching up to do. And, yeah, I, I can't see them progressing from here. Let's talk about the good news stories of the night because they were all Ecuador. Before we talk about Inna Valencia, because he's off in his own special category today, I wanted to ask you about the, the rest of the Ecuadorian team, whether it was how they played or individual players. What caught your eye and what do you think made them special, especially as they really dominated and, and if anything, weren't value for their domination by half time of the game? Yeah, I mean, obviously, I think going forward, you know, some of their some of their through balls and their runs off the ball to get him behind and you know penetrate the Qatari defense was super impressive. And um, you know, they obviously qualified fourth in South America as well, uh, so they're obviously no slouches. But for some reason, the narrative around them going into this tournament was everybody thought they might bow out in the group. But I mean, now you're looking at the group and thinking they could maybe even top the group. So I mean. Like you mentioned, Enna Valencia scoring a couple of goals was amazing, but I think the whole performance from the whole team was, was extremely positive, and I think that's given them a really good kind of platform to build on. Let's talk about Enna Valencia then, because he, he spent time in the Premier League, West Ham, Aston Villa, you know, a, a good performer, but he's 33 years old now, but he hasn't missed a beat. He's scored five consecutive goals for his country in World Cups. He's become Ecuador's top scorer in World Cups as a result. How impressed were you with this old hand still delivering on the big stage? Yeah, and obviously you mentioned earlier the, the disallowed goal as well at the start, so he could have even had more goals. Um, but, you know, obviously the, the header in particular, the way he took that, it was incredibly clinical. And 
Um, you know, I think for Ecuador to have a have a good tournament, he's going to be front and center of it. And you know, obviously, it's not only about his goals, but I think that in that team, he's the real leader. And you know, his composure for the penalty as well. It was such a composed penalty, and you could tell that the nerves didn't get to him. And if you can compare that with you know the Qatari mentality around the game and how they approached it, I think that kind of speaks volumes about the experience that he can bring. But yeah, I mean. That you know the way he's performed and started this World Cup, it's um, it's amazing, and I'm sure that the the Ecuadorian fans are hoping that can continue. Now, we threw out a question that prompted some furious debate here in the Optus office, which was players who went beast mode at the World Cup. Now, we're not talking about superstar players who delivered up to their reputation or simply continued the form that they'd showed. We were looking for the players who had either been underwhelming in club football or not particularly noteworthy, the Enna Valencias of the world. So I'm going to throw some, some names at you. You tell, me if, you tell me if there's one I've missed or if uh, there's one you particular, that particularly sticks in your memory. I think the obvious one to start with, and this is what prompted the most debate, Miroslav Klose. Am I being too harsh on his club career or is he a good example of someone who went beast mode at the World Cup? I mean, he's the first example that came to my mind as well. And I mean, it's not downplaying the, the career that he had at club level. It was more how formidable he was in the World Cup. And, you know, all he seemed to score all of Germany's goals. And obviously Germany, he was playing in an era where Germany had a lot of success. But I mean, for sure, he's the first player that came to my mind mentioning about that as well. From the most recent World Cup, how about Denis Cheryshev? There's a name we've barely heard since. Yeah, obviously uh, they were the host nation last time. And I think, yeah, the success of them in that tournament was largely down to him. And he obviously, obviously was immense in that tournament as well. So there's no doubt he was another one. And I mean, for me personally, the one that comes to my mind, which, and again, this is not, no kind of slout on his uh, club career, but Tim Cahill. And I think that... Whoa, no, 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 Tommy, <laughs> come on. No, but I mean, obviously everyone knows what he achieved in the Premier League, but in the World Cup, he went to four World Cups and what he managed to do, he was, you know, Australia's main man. And yeah, I, th- I Actually, think that, yeah. I guess if we're throwing, I mean, Closer did win the Bundesliga twice. So I guess <laughs> if, we're, if, we're throwing, if we're throwing Closer into this category, then I guess you have to kind of throw in Tim Cahill, but that's not a name that came to mind for me. So that's a great shout. Here are some, here are some other names from, from more recent World Cups. Uh, James Rodriguez, who won a golden ball, a golden boot, sorry. Guillermo Ochoa, the Mexican goalkeeper who just became a brick wall at World Cups. You think of the amazing performance he had against Brazil as well. Then a little bit further back in time, what about Diego Forlan? Because he he was player of the tournament in 2010, and most of the English press remember, remembered him as a flop at Manchester United. For sure. I mean, he's one that kind of skipped my mind, but I remember that tournament extremely well. And obviously, yeah, there was a lot of you know kind of events in that tournament as well. And for him to stand out with the side that they have, I mean, spoke, speaks volumes about the, the, the quality of the tournament he must have. You know, having the likes of, you know, Luis Suarez and Cavani and still being the player that manages to stand out obviously speaks volumes about the quality of the tournament that he had. And then it's a slightly different category because Kaylor Navas had an amazing 2014 World Cup with uh, Costa Rica and then went to Real Madrid, became Real Madrid's number one and stayed at Real Madrid. It's almost like he made that, that leap. He went beast mode in a World Cup, but then he stayed there. So, I mean, maybe Enna Valencia is not going to do that at age 33, but, I mean, we've got 63 more games for someone to do that, don't we? Yeah, I mean, that's definitely a trend that you see. You see players use the World Cup as kind of a platform or a springboard to propel them, you know, for their career. And you've seen a lot of 
like not obviously to that extent, but you've seen a lot of the Socceroos in the 2006 World Cup used that World Cup as a springboard to go onto you know greener pastures. But yeah, I mean, James Rodriguez, you mentioned him, mentioned him earlier. He's another one that on the back of you know that fantastic World Cup earned earned a place in Real Madrid and obviously went on to have a, a good five or six year career after that. Oh, see, but I think Kelo Navas probably went on to have a better Real Madrid career than James did. No I doubt, mean, no doubt. <laughs> and then some other names from, from uh, tournaments. Marco Materazzi, his reputation was made in 2006, uh, having not been the greatest club footballer before then. Cuauhtémoc Blanco, the Mexican, 1998, and then uh, amazingly reappearing 12 years later in South Africa in 2010. And my, my personal favourite, as always, Gary Breen, the Republic of Ireland defender, who was linked from a move from Coventry City to Barcelona based on how he played in 2002. But you might have been a bit young. Do you remember the 2002 World Cup, Tommy? Do I need to know my audience yeah. here? Well, that one was a little bit early for me. I think I was only 11 at the time. So I think I definitely would have been a spectator, but I probably wasn't looking at it. Uh, As an analyst? Yeah, probably not. <laughs> not quite. <laughs> All right, so Enna uh, Valencia, watch this space. Now, when it comes to Ecuador, we speak about them getting through the group. Of course, it's an amazing achievement that they're even at this World Cup because they've been stuck in the court of arbitration for sport due to the Byron Castillo case. Uh, they've had Chile trying to take their place in the World Cup. I mean, is this the sort of uh, siege mentality or backs-to-the-wall team sort of unifying situation that could see them go all the way? I mean, they've ultimately left Castillo out, but his replacement was good in the starting 11 today. So is this maybe an underrated factor? The story all the way to the World Cup is Ecuador might get kicked out. Is the story now the threat of being kicked out may have galvanised Ecuador? For sure. I mean, they kind of put to bed any kind of, you know... um rumors or any kind of their thoughts that that you know that it's going to affect them or distract them going into the tournament i mean they were excellent last night and as you mentioned uh his replacement got an assist as well last night in the game so no i I think that yeah that siege mentality that you discussed i think obviously it was disappointing to see castillo not be a part of the world cup but um you know i'm sure that the whole team they really see him as part of the group and i think he played such a pivotal role in the qualifying campaign that he's kind of there with them in spirit i'm sure so uh, I'm sure the players, you know, they're, they're probably is part of them that are trying to, to be successful for him as well. So as you mentioned, there's no doubt that that could definitely have a big galvanising effect on the side. Now, before we hear from Mark Schwarzer and turn our attention to the countdown to Socceroos kickoff, let's uh, have just one more hard-hitting question for you here, Tommy. Who are you pointing the finger of blame at? For Qatar, this loss, 12 years in the making, unfortunately, for them. Felix Sanchez on the sidelines had horrendous body language all game. That was definitely raised uh, in the the post-match show by Mark Bosnich and Craig Foster on SBS. And I think a lot of people were observing just how morose he looked and he wasn't energising his team. But are you pointing the finger at Felix Sanchez or are you pointing it at the individual players? I mean, I think it's a combination of both. And I think if you look at the, the first half performance like we touched on before, I think that the overarching theme from a Qatari perspective was that, that they were overawed by the occasion. And, you know, they really didn't settle into the game. And, you know, obviously the coach is partly responsible for creating that environment. So, um, you know, it, it's easy to kind of, you know, throw the blame only at the coach. But I do think the players are also somewhat responsible because... You, know, you look at some of the the, the uh, chances that 
Ecuador created in that first half and they were sloppy mistakes from the Qatari midfield you know coughing up possession in dangerous areas or poor choice of pass and I mean these are things that the coach you can't really control from the sideline the players on the ball are responsible for those decisions so I mean there's no doubt that he is you know somewhat responsible for the poor poor performance but I think that ultimately the responsibility relies with the players. Jack Austin in here at Optus was very keen to point out, Tommy, that we haven't had an in-World Cup managerial change since 1998. Do you think there's any risk that after fluffing his lines on the big stage, Qatar could do the unthinkable and sack their gaffer (laughs) mid-tournament? To be honest, I wouldn't put it past them. I think that, um, you know, I think it'd be a shame for them to do it now. There's, like I mentioned before, there's still two games to play for. Um, you know, there's there's still everything to play for. Sorry, there's two games left. And, you know, I think that a poor performance in their second game, I could see that happening, to be honest. But, I mean, to see it now, I think that that would be very premature and hopefully not. So, as promised, let's throw over to Mark Schwarzer. We've got the countdown to the Socceroos going on, but let's get an overall sense of the vibe first on what things are like on the ground in Qatar. Well, the atmosphere on the ground here has been quite unique, actually. Um, leading up to today's first game, it's been pretty quiet. We've had the odd pockets of fans around, um, but not many. You would never have thought that there was a major tournament about, about to be taking place, I mean, let alone a World Cup. But the overall process of arriving in the country has been very, very straightforward. People have been very, very helpful overall. Um, for me personally, I, I've found no problems whatsoever um, and uh, it's been quite an easy, enjoyable place to work in so far. Um, but now the games are starting. Now the, they're coming thick and fast and uh, we'll see how it unfolds over the next couple of days. Mark Schwarzer there in Qatar with a bit of a vibe of how it's feeling on the ground. Let's hone our focus in now and hear what Mark has to say about the Socceroos' preparations for their opening game. Yeah, the loss of Martin Boyle has been huge. Uh, he's a big, big uh, personality within the group. And uh, obviously he's been struggling from day one. We all know that. And I think there was a real sense of hope that he would be fit. He's He's got something special. He's obviously a really incredibly hard worker. He's someone that is very dogged, fights for everything. Um, he drags people with him. Uh, he's got some really good qualities on the ball. He can finish and I think that's going to be a really big loss for the Socceroos. But the positive is he's going to stay in camp. He's got his staff kit on, and he was very much involved today at training uh, with the group and encouraging the boys, and he will stay here as long as the Socceroos are here and lend his full support, which I have to say, you have to take your hat off to him because that is very tough to do. And as it is, we know sport is brutal. So one player's uh, misery, one player's omission, one player's you know, withdrawal means that someone else has another opportunity or has an opportunity. And Marco Tilio is the one. Um, we know that he came into camp a couple, of, a couple of days ago. He was a little bit unfortunate for a lot of people to have missed out in the first place. Um, Matthew Leckie mentioned again today, he talked about how you know, he's a good kid, he's a really talented footballer, he's someone that could go on to really bigger and better things and certainly would be involved um, if he continued his path of upward uh, improvement uh, for the next campaign. But look, things can change and he's here, he's in the squad and there's every chance he could have a, an impact off, off the bench. How that affects the starting eleven? there's certainly going to be readjustments because for me he was a dead cert to start um, Martin Ball had he been fit and um, there's going to certainly be adjustments now. 
The question is, I think Matthew Leckie will come in instead. Uh, Owen will on one side. I think Matthew Leckie will be on the other side. I don't think it really matters which side they both play on. I think they're both more than capable and happy to switch it over left or right side of, of, of those sort of winging, attacking midfield plays, whatever you want to call them. Um, the biggest problem is going to be in midfield because we talked about uh, Aidan Rustic having problems with fitness uh, all, all these last couple of days across, amongst the media, uh, all the reports going out. Today was the first time that Aidan Rustic took part in a team session and uh, he looked he looked okay. He looked like he was moving freely. He looked uh, pain-free and he looked pretty sharp from what we saw, albeit only the first 15 minutes of the session. You know, Harry Sitter's another one. He's trained every day since we've been here. He's been he's looked sharp. He looks very confident. He talked in his press conference a couple of days ago how well he felt. So I think he'll be partnering Kai Rolls in the centre-half position. So I think we're pretty much there. Up front, Mitch Duke or... Jamie McLaren, I think, are the two that are going to start. Possibly Mitch Duke because of his size, his strength, uh, his pace, um, even though I think Jamie McLaren's certainly got a better eye for goal. Uh, he's in rich vein of form, eight goals in six games for, for Melbourne City. You know, there's a, there's, a, there's a sense of real determination, a sense of thinking about four years ago, those guys who were there and playing against France and Denmark and how close and on occasions they came, but how far they were. From, from getting maximum points against either of, the, either of those sides. So this is a sense of possibly for some of these players or, or quite a few of these players, the last opportunity to get something out of games against people like France and Denmark. And a big thanks to Mark Schwarzer there with his update from over in Doha as we count down to Australia taking on France. Tommy Orr, former Socceroo himself, what did you make of Mark's update there? It's been a big 48 hours of news with uh, Martin Boyle going out of the squad and Marco Tilio coming in amongst all the other excitement of counting down to kickoff. Yeah, I mean, obviously, Swartzy touched on it um, in some depth there, but you know, I think that you know Martin Boyle, though he's a massive loss for the Socceroos and. You know, like Swatchy mentioned, it's not only the quality that he brings on the field, it's also his influence to other players, you know. He's, he's a dogged player, like Swatchy said, and um, yeah, I mean, I mean, his overall approach to the game and his aggression, he's chasing down, you know, hounding defenders. I think that, you know, that's a really hard thing that not many other players in our squad can kind of replicate. So for sure, he's a big loss, but I mean, you know, these are the cards that we've been dealt. And in Marco Tilly, we've got an exciting young player, and I mean, I don't expect him to maybe play from the start, like Swartzy said. I think that he'll be brought off the bench, maybe, you know, with the likes of Garen Quall and these types of things. But, um, yeah, I think it's a big big loss. As as far as looking through that list of Australian players and thinking who's going to score us a goal and the precious who's going to score us a goal from open play, Martin Boyle was right up there at the top of the list for me. So it's a pretty devastating blow, isn't it? I guess uh, as far as how it affects the ethos and the morale of the group, I mean... The way that a Martin Boyle had taken on this journey of representing Australia, it had been a key part of gluing the squad together. Does this mean that with the benefit of hindsight, taking Jason Cummings, who's done exactly the same thing, is now a bit of a stroke of genius? Because we we lose Boyle's presence on the field, and, and that can't be replaced. But at least among the squad that is still there among the team. You know, the, the not, I mean, adopted Aussie is probably the wrong term. The, you know, the, the player who's put on the jersey and is going to wear it with pride and feels Australian, it's nice that it's not just Boyle, it's Suter, it's Cummings. It's, it's a contingent of players that are on this journey together. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, as you mentioned, it's obviously a bit of a theme now in the national team, you know, players that are kind of 
you know, born in other countries or whatever, but they really identify as being Australian. And I think that, you know, for all the other players in the squad, it, it helps them understand and, you know, appreciate how good it is to be Australian and all the things that we value and, you know, um, that, that we can bring to the table. You know, it's good from an outside influence or outside perspective to understand exactly how, you know, powerful that can be. And um, obviously you touched on how much of an influence and how much of a goal-scoring threat um, Martin Boyle can be, but I guess that the flip side of that is that someone else, this will provide opportunity for someone else to step up to the plate. And um, obviously he's still going to stay in the camp and, you know, kind of support the boys from the sidelines. And obviously, you know, most of his influence was always seen as on the field, but being a popular figure off the field, as we saw when the Socceroos qualified, you know, for the World Cup and how he celebrated with all the boys, I think that that'll be, um, that'll yeah, really go down well with the squad. And I think that can also, all those little things kind of help a lot. What about the headquarters of where Australia's living at the Aspire Academy? They've got the murals on the walls, you know, the, the painting of Andrew Redmayne uh, celebrating his penalty save. They've got the words of Land Down Under written out on the wall. There's green and gold everywhere. The players have got pillars with their names and numbers on them. They really are living in sort of like a football theme park style camp. Uh, were you were you jealous when you saw that? Was that replicated in any way with your own World Cup experience, or were you just staying in a hotel as opposed as opposed to Socceroo Land, which is where they're currently living? Yeah, I mean, my experiences weren't that kind of extravagant, I guess you could say. But I think that that you know all those little things creates an environment where you know the players will appreciate how special and how big the occasion of being in a World Cup is, and you know their accomplishment to get into the final squad alone is obviously amazing, but. I think that those kind of, you know, little environmental changes or, you know, can really be special and can kind of, you know, help inspire the team to go on to, to be successful for sure. I, I mean, I know it's symbolism and iconography, right? But I was still so impressed, like, of uh, I guess if you use the word extravagant, if you're going to have the extravagances of taking care of your visiting teams, I think that's set a bar that every other World Cup is going to have to match now. I mean, including Australia for the Women's World <laughs> yeah. Cup next year. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a pretty hard, uh, pretty difficult bar to, to live up to. But, I mean, yeah, for sure. Like I mentioned. Well, I think... is that because most countries don't have a song as iconic as Land Down Under <laughs> that they can put the lyrics to on the wall? Yeah. <laughs> Potentially, that, that's the case. But, I mean, yeah, obviously the, the uh, resources at that venue as well are something that's really difficult to rival as well. But, I mean, you know, the, the points of difference in in terms of that setup is nothing to do with money it's all about you know the heart and soul of being Australian and I think that the players will love that let's get on to day two and a quick preview to look ahead the other game in group a Netherlands Senegal Tommy is this as clear-cut as it looks is it Netherlands to win or is there a risk of them starting slow or even tripping at the first hurdle yeah, I think this is going to be a fascinating game. And, you know, I think the Netherlands are now 15 games unbeaten since Louis van Gaal took over. So I, I think that they are going to win this game. But the unique thing about Senegal is that they're a team that really has a lot of emphasis on defence. And I think they've had six clean sheets in their last eight matches. So, I mean, the Netherlands might find them quite difficult to break down. And I think, obviously, Sadio Mane is a massive loss for Senegal. And um, I think the Netherlands will win. But I don't think it's going to be as clear-cut as people potentially think. Speaking of potentially tricky World Cup opening games, the three Lions, England, they are playing Iran. What do you think is going to happen here? I think that, yeah, Iran's obviously like a tricky side, but I think obviously the question mark for this game is which England are you going to get? And I think if we can get the England that we saw in the last European Championships, and I don't see this game giving them too many issues, but obviously there's been big 
you know, discussions around their lead into this World Cup and how poor their form's been. And I think they're going to want to put a lot of those comments to bed in this game. But I think, you know, they'll be looking for a fast start. And I think the longer that this game goes on without a goal or these types of things, I think that I can see them potentially getting quite frustrated. So I think for the whole tournament, there is a lot riding on this game for England. And the Stars and Stripes, the America will kick off against Wales, who have waited 64 long years for this moment to play in a World Cup again. I think the US are going to be one of the worst teams at this tournament. Tommy, am I wrong? I can see Wales getting all three points here. I th- I, I'm on the same page as you, and I think that both teams will see this potentially as you know their chance to take that second spot in the group, and I agree with you. I think that Wales is probably my favourite to get that spot, but... Um, you know, obviously all eyes will also be on Gareth Bale in this game to see if he can recapture, you know, some of his form and lead his country again to, uh, yeah, get out of the group. Tommy Orr, it's been fun. Enjoy the World Cup. Only one game down, plenty to go, but thanks for joining us on the Gegenpot. Pleasure. Thanks for having me. A big thanks to Tommy Orr. He'll be back tomorrow to talk about not one, but three games, as will I, your host, Teo Pelizzeri. So make sure you hit subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and rate us five stars while you're there. If the World Cup's not enough of a football fix for you, don't forget we've also got live football going with all the international friendlies this week and the WSL live and exclusive on Optus Sport. So don't stay away too long because we'll be back tomorrow. This has been the Optus Sport Football Podcast. Thanks for listening to the Gegenpod. Pod.